Welcome to Friendship with God. Today, Tom Cantor will show us how God made from John 1 and 1 Corinthians 5, as well as Genesis. This message and previous messages are available for free download at friendshipwithgod.org. Father, thank you so much for the fact that as you were with Jim, so you will be with us. Your charge to Joshua. Lord, this morning we have a problem with our eyes. We see too much of what distracts us away from you and see too little of you. And you said, I counsel thee to get from you I solve that we might see. So, Lord, this morning we come to you today for that heavenly eye solve that we might see Jesus. Fill all our vision, Savior divine. Let us see only Jesus today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you turn, uh, please, in your Bible to John chapter 1, first verse of John chapter 1. So we look at this marvelous passage here. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him. And without him was not anything made that was made. You know, in Sunday school, we've been, we're, we're studying Genesis 1, although you may not believe that if you've come to Sunday school, but <laughs> I guarantee you that we are, which is all about what God made. It's all about what God's creation. He made, he made. He made the physical world of the earth, He made the physical world in the skies. And how marvelous those creations are. You know, turn to Psalm 8, verse 1 through 3. As David marvels on the the creation, and we can enter in with David into what he's saying here. He says in Psalm 8, verse 1, he says, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name. In all the earth, who has set thy glory above the heavens? And notice verse 3 When I consider the heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon, the stars which thou hast ordained. Look over at Psalm 19, verse 1. He says, The heavens declare or preach the glory of God, the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech, night unto night showeth knowledge. There's no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them hath he set a tabernacle or a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoices as a strong man to the race. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his, his, his handiwork. You go outside on a very dark place, away from the city. You look up and you see a show that dazzles you. You've never seen before. The sky's filled with the sparkle of stars. Stars that are close. Stars that are, relatively speaking, stars that are far away. Infinite layers of depth. You see all that. And you look at those stars and you hear preaching, preaching from those stars. The sky is preaching a message of declaration. What's the message that's being preached from the skies? The glory of God. 
That's the message. The glory of God. The beautiful work of the hands of God. Literally, the product of His hands. And then it says, day unto day, utter a speech. What speech? We go outside and we see the sun in all of His glory. And we say, son, what are you doing up there, son? And the sun speaks, I'm showing the glory of God. Night unto night showeth knowledge. We go out to the skies, we, 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 we ask the stars, we ask the sky, stars and skies, what knowledge are you showing us? And the stars and the sky reply back, I'm showing you the knowledge of the glory of God. And there's no speech, there's no language where their voice is not heard. Their lines gone out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. What language is being spoken by the sun and the stars in the sky. Every language. Every language. How far can this universal language be heard? The voices of the sun, the stars in the sky are heard throughout all the earth. No limitation. The words of the sun and the star in the skies are heard to the end of the world. What a choir. What a beautiful, harmonious choir. All singing the glory of God. That's their message. God made the physical world, and it shows the glory of God. He also made the non-physical world in nature what the Bible calls exceeding wise or wisdom. Two years ago, one of the trips in Ethiopia, I got to go with some colleagues down to the Serengeti plane in Tanzania. I mentioned that this morning. And our guide, his name was Bashiri, who was raised a Muslim, And all through the five days as we spent looking at these animals, kept reading verses from the Bible and saying, Bashiri, the Lord Jesus Christ made this animal and he loves you. We just kept saying that over and over again. The end of the trip, right there at the airport, Bashiri bowed his head and wanted to become a Christian, which he did. But on the trip, we were in the middle of the trip, driving out there in this big plane, and he says, you see that bird there? And, I, and we saw it, and I said, that's an Egyptian vulture. I was so excited to see the Egyptian vulture. I wasn't expecting to see it because we weren't in Egypt. And so, <laughs> but there he was, one of my favorite animals, the Egyptian vulture. He was right there. It was, and he was there, and there was ostriches out there in the plane. And I, I'd studied the Egyptian vulture. I even have videos on my computer, and I never saw one before. And... It's an amazing animal, the Egyptian vulture. Well, first of all, he's the smallest of all vultures. He was sitting out there. It's about this, not that long. It wasn't a very big vulture. But I really like the Egyptian vulture because he likes to eat, and I like to eat. And he especially likes to eat a certain food. And, um, and you know what he eats? He eats ostrich eggs. That's what this bird eats. Now, that's a problem. Why? Because ostrich eggs are the biggest egg of any bird. They weigh more than the Egyptian vulture weighs. That's the first problem. The second problem is that the ostrich egg is the hardest egg. You can stand on 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 an ostrich egg. It won't break. Very, very tough egg. And the Egyptian vulture, he's not only the smallest vulture, he has a very delicate beak. There's no way that he can use that beak to break open this egg. It's a very hard egg. So what does he do? He uses the tool. Egyptian vulture, he goes and scours the plain, searching and searching, looking everywhere to find the, the, a particular rock, very special rock. This rock has to have a pointed 
edge to it. It has to have a, has to have a point. And when he finds it, he knows he's found it, and he grabs that rock with his beak, and he orients the point out from his body, and he comes waddling over from a long distance to the, the ostrich egg, and he rears his head up, and he pitches that rock down on the egg. That's amazing if you've ever seen that. Anybody ever seen that before? Anyway, and then he breaks the, the egg open. So here's what happened. In Cairo, there were scientists... I mean, those are the people that should study the Egyptian vulture, the Egyptians. And they asked a question. And their question was, when they saw him use this tool, did he, did, did he learn that from other Egyptian vultures? How does he know that, to use that rock? Did he come pre-programmed, or was he taught that? That was the question they asked. So they took an Egyptian vulture egg, and they incubated it till it hatched, and then they raised that Egyptian vulture up. He never saw another Egyptian vulture, the very lonely life. He never came in contact with any other bird. And then, when he was full grown, they, they, they had scattered a bunch of rocks over this area. And, and there was a pointed rocks, and then some non-pointed rocks. And then about 50 feet away, they put the ostrich egg. And you know what he did. He knew exactly what to do. He sorted through those rocks. He found the perfect pointed rock. He walked his 50 feet. And then he threw that pointed rock down and broke the egg open. Who put that wisdom into his brain? Who put that programming then? God did. He came that way from God. God created the non-physical. Hey, Egyptian vulture, what are you doing? When you go and you search and you find the pointed rock as a tool and you break that ostrich egg open and you know know what he answers? He says, I'm showing with my wisdom the glory of God. That's what he's doing. You know, if you turn to uh, Proverbs chapter 30 and verse 24, Proverbs 30, 24, Solomon, king of Israel, tells us, actually it was Agur who tells us, anyway, nonetheless, he says, there be four things which are little upon the earth, but they are, and the Bible calls this, exceeding wise. The answer of people not strong Yet they prepare their meat in the summer. The conies are but a feeble folk, yet make they their houses in the rocks. The locusts have no kings, yet they go forth all of them by bands. The spider taketh hold with her hands and is in king palaces, king's palaces. Hey, little ant, what are you doing when you show your wisdom to put away food for the winter? Hey, little rabbit, what are you doing when you go and you build your house up in the rocks of the mountain? Hey, locust with no leader, What are you doing when you come sweeping through with millions across the land? Hey, little creepy spider, what are you doing when you climb into palaces? The bee, what are you doing when you go and you take that nectar and you turn it into honey and you create within your hive a holy of holies for the queen bee to live in? Hey, hummingbird, what are you doing as you beat with your wings so fast Dragonfly, what are you doing as you back up in the air? Migrating stork, what are you doing? And you know what they all say? They all say together, we're showing with our wisdom the glory of God. He made us. That's the message. He made us. That's just part of what he made. Without him was not anything made that was made. He made them all. He made the sun. He made the stars. He made the wisdom of the animals. He made the animals. The glory of God. God made those things. 
God's a maker. Now turn to 2 Corinthians, please, 5.21. With all that in view, 2 Corinthians 5.21. This one who made all those things, it says about him, he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Awesome, amazing things that he made. With that as a backdrop, he was made sin for us. Even more amazing than the creation. And all that he made was that he was made sin for us. Turn to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53. Verse 1. Isaiah 53 starts off with a question. Starts off with a question because Isaiah and God know this is some report that we're going to give you right now. The maker was made sin for us. But the question really becomes, who's going to believe this report? Who is going to believe this report? You think the creation's amazing? This is even more amazing. Who's going to believe this? Who's brave enough to believe this? Who is, who is willing to believe this, is the question. Who will be like Abraham? Who will be like Abraham who will go out from his unbelieving family? Who will be like Abraham who will go out from his unbelieving kindred? Who will be like Abraham who will go out from his culture and his heritage that doesn't believe or follow God? Who is willing to say in verse 1, Oh God, Please reveal this to me. If the Lord Jesus Christ is God, if he made everything, and he is the Messiah who came, and he was made sin for me, and he suffered for my sins, Lord, let that be your arm that's revealed to me. Reveal this arm to me. Now look at the words that describe his sufferings. In verse 3, words like despised, words like rejected, a man of sorrows, Acquainted with grief, in verse 4, he was stricken, he was smitten, he was afflicted, verse 5, he was wounded, he was bruised, he was punished for our peace. He was beaten with stripes, verse 7, he was oppressed, he was afflicted and stricken, verse 8, bruised again in verse 10, and then killed, verse 8. And finally, to describe everything that happened to him, it says that, It doesn't say in verse 12, his soul was poured out unto death. It says, he poured his soul unto death. It says in in Psalm 69, 20, if you'd like to just turn over to that, speaking it, because we're always wondering, what was he thinking when all this was going on? All the suffering that was happening to the great maker when he was made to suffer for us. In Psalm 69, 20, it explains This had a tremendous effect. It says, reproach has broken my heart. His heart was broken. And I am full of heaviness. Every part of my being is in heaviness. And then it says, and we didn't know this until we read this, but it says, I looked. I looked for someone to take pity, but there was none. I looked for comforters. I found none. He looked for someone, anyone, just to show me pity. Anyone who would have compassion. Anyone who would show sympathy. And he said, I didn't find anybody. Everybody deserted me. They were all gone. Why? Why? Because he was made sin for us. 
Tom, you talked today about the glory of God from creation. But what does glory actually mean? That's a very good question, and it really deserves a very clear answer. Glory means brightness. It means the, the, the intensity of the light that comes through. So to give glory means to let the brightness shine through, to let the light shine through. So how do we see the glory of God Well, the only way we can see the glory of God is if he shows us his glory. This was brought out as Moses spoke to the Jewish people in Deuteronomy 5.24. He said, and ye said, behold, the Lord our God hath showed us his glory. Those words are so important because it teaches us that we see the glory of God by revelation. The, the fact that we can look at the creation of God, we see the glory of God. What do we see in the creation of God? We see a great planning God. We see a great God of goodness. Every time an apple tree makes an apple and we eat the apple, that's the goodness of God. That's the glory of God in his goodness. When we look up on the sky and we see the beautiful clouds, the silver lining that comes from the reflection of the sun, the stars at night, that's the glory of God. To give us such a wonderful show to see at night. That's the brightness of God. We give God credit for that when we give God glory. And that's what it means to show when God shows us his glory. The Bible is the revelation of God. So in the Bible, since we have the revelation of God, the Bible is showing us his glory. It's teaching us how would we know? that God became a man and died for our sins. If we didn't have a Bible to tell us, we wouldn't. But he's given us his Bible. He's given us the revelation of it. And therefore, we see the glory of God and how he saved us from our sins from the Bible. So the principle is the Lord our God has showed us his glory. That's what the Jewish people said. And that's how we know his glory, because he shows it to us. And that's wonderful. And today you also talked about something unusual about the glory of God and that it was in the context of the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ. How does his suffering show his glory? Yeah, I mean, you think of the glory of God, and what do you think of? A magnificent mountain like Mount Everest, and you look at that and say, oh, God made that. That's, that brings glory to God, and it does. And you think of the glory of God, and you think of some some uh, greatness in the sky when you look up, as we just talked about. You see all the stars. You see the stellar constellations. You say, oh, glory to God who made that. That's right. But when you look at a beaten pulp of a man in the Lord Jesus Christ, who's been nailed to a cross. Do you say that's the glory of God naturally? You don't. But when you see what God has done there, you say, that's a more magnificent glory than Mount Everest, a more magnificent glory than the brightest stars that we could see at night. Why? Because it shows us a truth that God is love. You know, those three words, God is love, are repeated twice in 1 John 4. Once in verse 8, God is love. And a second time, eight verses later in verse 16, God is love. And when we see the beauty of his love, the magnificence of his love, 
then we say that's the glory of God. You can't see a more magnificent, a more beautiful display of the love of love of God than you see in Calvary on the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why when he came to earth and the angels announced, finally he's come, the words that sounded from heaven to the shepherds on that field in Luke chapter 2 verse 14 were the words, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. So when you see the goodwill, the tremendous goodwill that God is showing toward men in that he's saying, peace on earth, peace. He's made peace through the blood of his cross. He has reconciled man to God. He has brought the warfare to an end. He has brought back the, the man who was alienated to him, and he said, peace, peace, shalom, peace. That's glory. That's the glory of God. Why? Because he's healing us. He's healing man. He's healing man of his worst disease, the disease of sin. It's costing him so much, the giving of his only begotten son, God the Son, putting off his great power as the and all the glory that he had putting it off so that he could become a humble man be born in a manger be born in in a stable sorry and put then in a manger that's glory to god see it's just like when the lord jesus christ was standing before lazarus in his dead state and he said the, he said, "He said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified there be. That's exactly what he said in John 11, verse 4. He said, the sickness is for the glory of God. What was the glory of God? It was going to be that he was going to raise Lazarus to cure his deadness and raise him from the dead and give him life again. And that the Son of God, that's the Lord Jesus Christ, was going to be glorified of it. Because he cried out, Lazarus, come forth. And and he was glorified. The Lord Jesus Christ was glorified when Lazarus came forth. That was the creator. He had all power at that point. And when he cried out, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus came forth. That brought glory to him. You know, it's a good thing that he said, Lazarus, come forth. Or the whole graveyard would have come forth. Because he had that power as the son of God. But that brought glory to him. He cured the deadness, the disease. It's just like in John chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. It says, Jesus passed by. He saw a man which was blind from his birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither hath this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. The works of God made manifest. And what was the work of God? It was that he cured him of his blindness. And when he cured him of his blindness, he was showing the glory of God in healing his disease of blindness. When he saved us from our sins, when he died on the cross from our sins, he cured us of the disease of our sinfulness. And when he did that, that was a great glory to God. 
when he went to a cross, when he was beaten to a pulp, when he was nailed to a cross, and he poured out his blood unto death to us, he poured out his life, he poured out his blood to save us from our sins, he cured us of our disease. And you can't see a greater glory of God than on the cross, because there God humbled himself so low. And he took upon our sins in his humbled, in his state of humility. And when he did that, he cured us. That was the greatest glory of God. It was, it's bright. It shines to us. It's by revelation that we understand it. And we can say, the works of God were manifest in the Lord Jesus Christ when he died for our sins, because in so doing, he bought each one of our tickets and our passages to heaven. So we go to heaven as we go to heaven and we have the ticket of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We walk into heaven saying, glory to God in the highest. He saved me from my sins. Thank you for joining us today. Join us again tomorrow as Tom Cantor finishes his message on God Made. Now, do you have a Jewish friend or know of a Jewish person that needs to be reached with the gospel? We'd like to help you by sending them a Tom Cantor DVD or booklet. So call us today at 1-800-247-3051. Once again, that's 1-800-247-3051. 3051, and we can help you to fulfill God's command to go to his lost nation of Jewish people first, whether it's a friend, coworker, neighbor, businessman, friend, or family member. So call us today at 1-800-247-3051. Visit our websites, israelrestoration.org or friendshipwithgod.org for more information. 